Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Praise God for his commandment to us to preach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Thank God for men who have written music that we can lift our hearts to praise to him and preach to one another the goodness of him who makes it possible for all things to be well, both in trial, tribulation, and the humiliation of the cross. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And one day we will know him in exalted glory. It is only through these great truths that we know and experience God himself as he interacts with us. And it is to his praise and his glory, as all of the Bible points to, that it's all about him. So as we gather this morning together, we look forward to this time, not to be entertained or for me to be witty about bringing a word to you, but rather for us in humility to look to the text, for us to be changed by his word and his spirit's work in us. And so if you'll join me, we'll read verse 1 through 12 this morning. We'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll preach. James 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. We've been called to worship you, Lord, this morning by your text, by our brother, Jordan, bringing us into this time where we want to worship you. We remember your great goodness in the cross. We come now to your throne asking you to teach us. Lord, we ask, like your disciples, teach us to pray. We ask, like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We ask that you'd give us hearts to receive your word today, not to repel it or to think that we're above it. Give us hearts of flesh. We need you this morning, God, to come and minister to us. 
May your spirit work in my own heart to, to, to change me, to change us as we encounter your word and need to hear from you today. This is the pinnacle of worship service today, not just music, but as we look to your word to see Christ crucified, exalted. We ask that you would be at work and that you would receive honor through our hearts treasuring you. We thank you for life that you have given to us in and through Jesus Christ alone. We ask this morning that you would give us humble hearts to hear and to receive your word so that we might be changed to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ forever. It's in your name we pray. Uh, have any of you ever said something like this when you've experienced, maybe you've experienced something for a while, and you said, well, if I ever a chance to do this, if I was ever in that situation, I would probably do it differently. I will not do the same thing that everyone else did or this person before me. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to me. There was, there's got to be a better way to make things happen than the way that they do it this way. I can remember, as a kid growing up and into my teenage years, my parents washing Ziploc bags, sour cream containers, glass jelly jars, and anything else like that I would call a disposable container, and they'd want it to be rinsed out and used again and washed properly so it could be used a second, third, or a tenth time over. Now, I, I realized they were trying to do that so they could save themselves from buying more of those things and use them to their advantage. This bothered me greatly, though, because every night... I had to wash them by hand. I had to stand there and wash these things and hand them off to my sister so he, she was supposed to dry them. And by far, the worst are Ziploc bags. Have, have any of you ever tried to wash a Ziploc bag? It's terrible. You try to get on all the nooks and crannies, and you try to turn it inside out to make sure that part gets done, and then you try to like, turn it back in because the other part got greasy from the outside of the bag. It's a mess. And then you have to put it like delicately to dry properly because there's no way to dry it properly like with, a, with, a, with anything to dry it. You have to let it dry properly. Needless to say, I hate washing Ziploc bags. My sister and I would commiserate about this, talk about the fact of how silly it was of our parents to save these Ziploc bags and other things. And, uh, you know, we, we would never do that. And we would grumble and complain and say, one day I, I will never wash Ziploc bags when I grow up. My sister has remained true to this commitment. She's doing well. I, on the other hand, uh, washed some Ziploc bags just this past week. Um, and I still hate it. <laughs> but it starts to make sense to me. I kind of get it. Um, I never liked when Stacy would take a passage of Scripture and he'd come to it and he'd do like a part one, a part two, or a part three sermon series on this, or not, just on one section. And I thought that this should really be tackled all at once in one whole. Uh, it didn't make sense to me. Take care of it. Like, just get it all done in one sermon. Come on, man. So today, we'll be looking at part one <laughs> of a two-part sermon in James 1.12. In my inexperience and pride, I thought that I knew best uh, the way to handle a large section of Scripture after all, if I can preach a full book of the Bible, certainly I can handle seven verses in one sermon. This past week, I've been working through James 1, 12 through 18. Uh, it is really good. And over and over, Chris and I have talked about it a couple times. I've talked about other people. I, I just see over and all the, the wickedness of my own heart and God's work and grace to me through this text. 
there is a lot of stuff going on, some really incredible stuff. But I, I don't want to confuse or muddy the water by presenting too many things at once. I know just enough that I need to do a few things well, not a bunch of things poorly. So instead of preaching all of verses 12 through 18 together, I will cover verse 12 today, and then we'll preach 13 through 18 next week. Sometimes you realize that other people are smarter than you. Uh, we've made it through our, full, our first full rotation in James. We said from the beginning when we did our introduction that there are three major themes that run through the book of James. We've already seen all three of them as we've worked through this. Verses two through four, we saw steadfastness. Then we moved into wisdom in verses five through eight. And then we saw the things that lead to partiality, those things with the rich and the poor between those things. So already we've seen that, and that was in verse nine through 11. He does all of this by meeting the people where they're at. He understands his audience and he understands their life and what they're going through. And by recognizing that these congregations are falling among various trials, we can very easily relate. For there is not a group of Christians in the history of the world who are not affected by various trials. We can uh, see this, but we also see right away, verse 2, right off the bat, James starts with a command. Right there, I mean, it's literally the second verse in his letter here. Count it all joy. Boom. How are you as believers supposed to respond to these various trials? Consider it pure joy. No, like, it's good to see you guys. Grace be to you and all this nice flowery language. No, count it all joy. Boom, right off the bat. Then he moves to verse 3 and 4, and he explains that these trials are for testing us and our faith in Jesus Christ. And that this should work then in us steadfastness. Further, we saw that steadfastness is to work at perfecting us and make us perfect and complete, mature. The word we talked about was whole in Christ. This is, by the way, intended to be the entire goal of James through the entirety of the sermon, that we would be whole, that we would be found complete or perfect in Christ Jesus. For us to love the Lord our God then with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and that we'd love our neighbor as ourself, so that we'd have both our insides and the outsides doing the same thing, that what we say is in fact what we are doing. But we realize that this is really hard to do. We realize that the trials that are supposed to be for our good are hard to believe that they're trials, that they're somehow making us complete in Christ. James, knowing that we lack that perspective, calls us to pray for wisdom in verse 5. God is the only one who can provide the wisdom or the perspective that we need to see trials as pure joy. And so James calls us to pray or ask for wisdom with a singular heart, a faithful heart, or as, as James calls it, one that is in faith, one that is in faith to one person. And then he goes on to say who this person is. Ask God, who we talked about this also, not as generously as a little bit of a tough way to understand, but rather a better way for us to see that is he gives to us and he is of a singular nature. He is not divided. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. Or he doesn't give to us and then say, you shouldn't have done that. He doesn't treat us that way. He is then treating us as one who does not have reproach for us. We lack that perspective. James calls us to ask God for it and so we ask him for that. This God when he is asked for wisdom, will not give his children 
a stone or a snake, but rather we know that he will always give us bread. He is always good. He supplies exactly what James tells his children to ask for, wisdom. He promises he will do this. Last week we covered 9 through 11. When we did this, we saw that James is going to supply us an illustration of that wisdom. We get to take a look and see that he commanded the poor brother to boast in his exaltation. Remember this? And the, and the rich brother to boast in his humiliation. On the cover, that doesn't make any sense. The thing that helps us understand both of those things are that they are to be boasting in one person and one person alone. That's in Christ. We boast in the exaltation of Christ, that we will someday know him in an exalted status. And as we sit, by the way, as one with Christ, exalted on high, but we will also understand as a rich man, maybe on this earth, that we are one who's associating with the humiliated one, Jesus Christ, the crucified one. And so our boast, whether rich or poor, is in Christ alone. And it always has been. As we covered this, we understood then this wisdom teaches us to see our situations as joy. In all this, verse 2 through 11, he shows these churches how to count it pure joy that they must meet trials of various kinds in this manner. Today we arrive at verse 12, though, as a hinge verse. What I mean by that is it's doing two very important things. First, James wraps up all of verses 2 through 11 with a final word on steadfastness. That's what we'll talk about today. Second, he uses the context and these linking words of temptation and trial to launch into a very important section and a, a qualification about God himself. For when we see these things in a certain manner, we are tempted to think that God is evil or that he is the creator of temptation and evil. James is going to write us about that and make sure that we understand properly that is not the case. So verse 12 does those things. It reaches back and it also reaches forward to do that. He makes a statement then today that looks at all of it, brings us back to the beginning, and makes sure we're not distracted with all the details that we found in verses 2 through 11, and helps us get us centered back on steadfastness. Let me read verse 12 for us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James takes us back to steadfastness. We are talking about those Christian brothers who have fallen into various kinds of trials. They have trusted God during the testing of their faith and are now being described by James as the ones who are steadfast. That's their category now. We're, we're working on this and we try to understand and we asked the question a few weeks ago, then what is steadfastness? What does it mean to be steadfast? I gave you what one scholar said. I thought it was so helpful and very simple. Steadfastness is faith stretched out. It is an expectant hope in Christ that endures with strength through all of life's difficulties. But why is James coming back to it now? He started, he talked through it, he explained it all through, even gave an example of wisdom to help us understand trials and to see how to be steadfast. Why is he coming back to it now? Is he clarifying? Is he adding new information? What's his point? We learn in verse 4 that steadfastness is to do its perfecting work in us. It should make us perfect. It should make us what Jesus talked about, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. That idea of teleos, that idea of making something complete and whole. 
He shows us that trials leading to steadfastness works perfection or wholeness in our Christian character here. It helps us to be single-minded so that we love our God with our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, and we love our neighbor as ourself. It's making us more and more like Jesus as we are here, on pil- as pilgrims on this earth. He really helps us to see the formation again then of our own Christian character through these verses. But as James returns to the subject, he is going to add some helpful information here. Not only will we grow in Christian character through steadfastness, but he is now going to describe the state of such a person. He is going to describe what God thinks about this person, the one who is steadfast. He's going to describe his state. James says that the one who is steadfast under trial is blessed or blessed. He truly has divine favor. The construction he used really should like pull our minds right away to Matthew 5. We should know exactly where he's going. These are the Beatitudes. This is the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is talking about this, this Latin word uh, beatus means blessed, and therefore the reason we call them the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Each of Jesus' statements that he's saying in this sermon start with the word blessed or blessed. I'll give you three examples that he talks about. Remember this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. James is using the same formula that Jesus used to show what it looks like when a person is in right relationship with God. He's trying to help them understand that what Jesus said about this, and now James is saying about this, is communicating that this group of people is blessed. And so what do they mean by this? When James used the word blessed, or that Greek word is makarios, it's a loaded, very weighty and theological term. Some of your, you may see something in some of your translations that says happy is this man, happy is that man. That, that's okay, it's not a bad idea, but you'll see the same word used a couple of places through Scripture. Also in the Old Testament, you're going to see it in Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2.12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is used throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs to show the result of a right relationship between God and man. The Bible does not use this term ever to describe the ungodly. You won't find this to be said then of unbelievers. Unbelievers are never called blessed. Those, the only people that are described as blessed are those who are in a right relationship with God. That being said, I believe we have a pretty poor understanding of what it means to be blessed. I don't have a Facebook account. I'm not on the Instagrams. Uh, But I walk around. I know people. I know what a hashtag is. I I get it. I've seen shirts that have hashtag blessed, like emblazoned in gold sequins on a black shirt, or uh, expensive cars with... um, like vanity plates that say blessed or some sort of, you know, brought this together to show this expensive car is showing they're blessed by Godness. I've heard people describing their wealth and vacations, their business opportunities, and they just declare, I'm just blessed, you know, I'm just blessed. They are what they think is a picture of God's divine favor and blessing. I'm not sure that Jesus was thinking of cold drinks on sunny beaches 
or new Mercedes-Benz or an expensive new purse and matching outfit when he was calling those who are being persecuted for righteousness' sake blessed. I think we've missed something. Scroll through the internet pages and see a picture of someone weeping and mourning with a caption of blessed doesn't quite fit with our generation's understanding of what it means to be blessed. Also, I'm pretty sure that if the world saw it, they'd be outraged to see a picture of a persecuted Christian beaten black and blue with blood coming out their ears and mouth with the hashtag blessed. But that's how Jesus sees it. He looks at that person and says, blessed. I'm pretty sure that the world would be unable to understand what Jesus said because their understanding of blessed is completely skewed. This is not how James sees it either. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There seems to be a disconnect then from the way that Jesus and James use this term and then the way that we throw it around so liberally today. He says then, blessed or flourishing in the eyes of God is the one who remains steadfast under trial. This person is flourishing. I call them blessed if they are ones who remain steadfast under trial. But James goes further than this. Look at the rest of verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in her trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. When he has stood the test, he will receive what? After the steadfast Christian has come out on the other side of trials and testings, he will receive the crown of life? What is this crown of life then that he is talking about? It, it sounds like a good thing. <laughs> It sounds like almost magical, like it, like it should be from Narnia. It's like, you know, the titles of C.S. Lewis's books, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, The Magician's Nephew, The Silver Chair, The Crown of Life. Like it seems like it should belong as part of that, right? Like it seems like it makes sense in that. It sounds like something we should all want to read about and figure out how to get this thing. What is James talking about? What is James talking about when he says the crown of life? In brief, when he uses the word crown, he is simply talking about a reward. He is talking about a reward. Paul talks about it, a crown as prize to be had at the end of a race in 2 Timothy 4.8. 1 uh, Peter 5.4 says Peter talks about this as a crown of those who are under shepherds, those who are pastors. 1 Corinthians 9.25 talks about a wreath or a crown given to those who are victorious. And probably most appropriate for our setting that we're talking about today, John in Revelation 2.10 says, tells us this, this is his command, be faithful unto death and Jesus will give you the crown of life. What is then this crown? Like I said, simply it is a reward. It is like the laurel wreath or a crown given to those who have finished their course properly and well. James uses the idea of a crown to communicate that we will be rewarded with life. It's not just any old crown. He will be rewarded with life, life eternal and perfect, life in heaven with him. We, are, will, then be in, we will be in complete communion with God for eternity. Matthew 24, 13 has Jesus telling us this, the one who endures or steadfasts, it's the same word, the one who endures to the end will be saved. James is describing something that is ancient, 
This description of divine blessing and reward is not a new concept with James. Think back to the garden with me. What choice did Adam have in the garden? To eat from every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. Or he could eat from that which God promised would bring death, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Living by and under God's kindly rule is life. Yes, it brings life as well, but living under his kindly rule and obedience is life. Uh, when God talks to Israel and describes his law, and then he re-gives it to them again in Deuteronomy, how does he frame this? Do you remember this? I'm going to read this. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read an entire section here from Deuteronomy 30. Listen for a moment. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. I want you to pay attention to the ideas of blessing and cursing and life and death. See how he connects them to his kingly rule. Make sure we understand how he frames this. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to Jordan to enter and possess. I, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give it to them. This is not new. This is the same life that we are talking about that God promised in and of himself. Choose life, he says. James says that we are looking toward God's divine blessing and final approval as we are rewarded with this at the end of, with this is then life, not death. The crown is a reward. It is the reward of life. It's the reward of knowing, loving, and obeying God. Here, yes, absolutely, but completely and perfectly then in the future. It is the same kind of life that we saw from Adam and Eve it's the same kind of life that we got set before from Israel to choose. This is divine blessing and full life in and through Jesus Christ now and forever. I joked earlier that the crown of life seemed almost magical or otherworldly, but it is. It's not like a crown here. It's not shiny and glimmery. It's one of magic in a sense. It is a reward of life that transcends this life. It is a reward of himself. The world seeks after life with gusto, long life with gusto. There's movies made all about people spending their whole life trying to find the fountain of youth. They want to know the secret of full and long life. How do I get this? How do I get my hands on this? I don't want to die. I want life. Brothers and sisters, 
we have that secret. As a side comment, may it never be a secret. The reason we come together this morning is to declare, to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, which is life to the world. But the world doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to find their fountain of youth in the crucified Christ who is indeed the living water. They don't want to bow the knee to someone greater than themselves and consider the trials that they are coming into as opportunities to put their trust in someone else and to give glory then to get through it to someone else. It's pretty simple then that those who treasure him, only those who know and see and savor him as the ultimate reward can then trust him. Only those who love the Lord with God with their heart, soul, and mind can know life. Look at how James finishes the verse. So he says, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He doesn't say those who obey him, those who believe in him. He chooses to use the word those who love him. If you remember, before we started in James 1 or the introduction, we actually went back to Matthew 10 to talk about what Jesus declares to be the first and second great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We started here because Jesus starts here. We started here because we know that without loving him, we have no way of doing anything else that he asks for us to do. And therefore, we have no way to be steadfast without starting with loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. Our Lord and Savior commands us then to embrace life. There are no imperatives in today's text. I don't know if you've realized that. It's pretty informative, but it doesn't tell you do this or don't do that. Rather, today when we look at this text, it doesn't tell us to do anything. Instead, verse 12 shows us that trusting Christ in the midst of various trials will bring steadfastness, which will then end in bringing us life. Life eternal, life in Him. James brings us back around to show us that there's more than just the here and now. There is that which is to come, life full, abundant. So, Brothers and sisters, with all that we know now about trials and how to endure them and as they work in us faith to trust God and that we need wisdom so that we can see those things and we see that all this works out so that what we really want to be after is steadfastness, I say to you then with all this understanding, let us pursue and choose life. That is what we want and that is only found in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us, trains us in righteousness, exhorts us, rebukes us. We ask today that we would glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who is able to make us go through the trials that you have for us, bring us forth, testing our faith, calling out to us, realizing that we need wisdom. I pray that we would glory in Christ and Christ alone this morning so that we might too have the crown of life which was promised to those who love him. We love you, God, and ask for your blessing as we approach the table. We worship you today, Jesus, as the one who's given himself for us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, 
please visit cbcvirginia.com.